Chapter 4 of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Darsh. Vanished Arizona. Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays. Chapter 4. Down the Pacific Coast. Now the Newburn was famous for being a good roller, and she lived up to her reputation. For seven days I saw only the inside of our stateroom. At the end of that time we arrived off Cape St. Lucas, the extreme southern point of Lower California, and I went on deck. We anchored and took cattle aboard. I watched the natives tow them off, the cattle swimming behind their small boats, and then saw the poor beasts hoisted up by their horns to the deck of our ship. I thought it most dreadfully cruel, but was informed that it had been done from time immemorial, so I ceased to talk about it, knowing that I could not reform those aged countries, and realizing, faintly perhaps, for I had never seen much of the rough side of life, that just as cruel things were done to the cattle we consume in the north. Now that Mr. Sinclair, in his great book The Jungle, has brought the multiplied horrors of the great packing-houses before our very eyes, we might witness the hoisting of the cattle over the ship's side without feeling such intense pity, admitting that everything is relative, even cruelty. It was now the middle of August, and the weather had become insufferably hot, but we were out of the long swell of the Pacific Ocean. We had rounded Cape St. Lucas and were steaming up the Gulf of California, toward the mouth of the great Colorado, whose red and turbulent waters empty themselves into this gulf at its head. I now had time to become acquainted with the officers of the regiment, whom I had not met before. They had come in from other posts and joined the command at San Francisco. The daughter of the lieutenant colonel was on board, the beautiful and graceful Carolyn Wilkins, the belle of the regiment, and Major North, to whose company my husband belonged. I took a special interest in the latter, as I knew we must face life together in the wilds of Arizona. I had time to learn something about the regiment and its history, and that Major Worth's father, whose monument I had so often seen in New York, was the first colonel of the 8th Infantry when it was organized in the state of New York in 1838. The party on board was merry enough, and even gay. There was Captain Ogilby, a great genial Scotchman, and Captain Porter, a graduate of Dublin, and so charmingly witty. He seemed very devoted to Miss Wilkins, but Miss Wilkins was accustomed to the devotion of all the officers of the 8th Infantry. In fact, it was said that every young lieutenant who joined the regiment had proposed to her. She was most attractive, and as she had too kind a heart to be a coquette, she was a universal favorite with the women as well as with the men. There was Ella Bailey, too, Miss Wilkins' sister, with her young and handsome husband and their young baby. Then, dear Mrs. Wilkins, who had been so many years in the army that she remembered crossing the plains in a real ox team. She represented the best type of the older army woman, and it was so lovely to see her with her two daughters, all in the same regiment. A mother of grown-up daughters was not often met with in the army. And Lieutenant Colonel Wilkins, a gentleman in the truest sense of the word, a man of rather quiet tastes, never happier than when he had leisure for indulging his musical taste in strumming all sorts of Spanish fandagos on the guitar, or his somewhat marked talent with the pencil and brush. 
the heat of the staterooms compelled us all to sleep on deck, so our mattresses were brought up by the soldiers at night and spread about. The situation, however, was so novel and altogether ludicrous, and our fear of rats which ran about on deck so great, that sleep was well nigh out of the question. Before dawn we fled to our staterooms, but by sunrise we were glad to dress and escape from their suffocating heat and go on deck again. Black coffee and hardtack were sent up, and this sustained us until the nine o'clock breakfast, which was elaborate, but not good. There was no milk, of course, except the heavily sweetened sort, which I could not use. It was the old-time condensed and canned milk. The meats were beyond everything, except the poor, tough, fresh beef we had seen hoisted over the side at Cape St. Lucas. The butter, poor at the best, began to pour like oil. Black coffee and bread and a baked sweet potato seemed the only things that I could swallow. The heat in the Gulf of California was intense. Our trunks were brought up from the vessel's hold, and we took out summer clothing. But how inadequate and inappropriate it was for that climate! Our faces burned and blistered. Even the partings on the head burned under the awnings which were kept spread. The ice supply decreased alarmingly, the meats turned green, and when the steward went down into the refrigerator, which was somewhere below the quarter-deck, to get provisions for the day, every woman held a bottle of salts to her nose, and the officers fled to the forward part of the ship. The odor which ascended from that refrigerator was indescribable. It lingered and would not go. It followed us to the table, and when we tasted the food, we tasted the odor. We bribed the steward for ice. Finally, I could not go below at all, but had a baked sweet potato brought on deck and lived several days upon that diet. On the 14th of August, we anchored off Mazatlan, a picturesque and ancient adobe town in old Mexico. The approach to this port was strikingly beautiful. Great rocks cut by the surf into arches and caverns guarded the entrance to the harbor. We anchored two miles out. A customs and a Wells Fargo boat boarded us, and many natives came alongside, bringing fresh coconuts, bananas, and limes. Some Mexicans bound for Guaymas came on board, and a troop of Japanese jugglers. While we were unloading cargo, some officers and their wives went on shore in one of the ship's boats, and found it a most interesting place. It was garrisoned by Mexican troops, uniformed in white cotton shirts and trousers. They visited the old hotel, the amphitheater, where the bullfights were held, and the old fort. They told also about the cockpits, and about the refreshing drinks they had. My thirst began to be abnormal. We bought a dozen coconuts, and I drank the milk from them, and made up my mind to go ashore at the next port. For after nine days with only thick black coffee and bad warm water to drink, I was longing for a cup of good tea or a glass of sweet, fresh milk. A day or so more brought us to Guaymas, another Mexican port. Mrs. Wilkins said she had heard something about an old Spaniard there, who used to cook meals for stray travelers. This was enough. I was desperately hungry and thirsty, and we decided to try and find him. Mrs. Wilkins spoke a little Spanish, and by dint of inquiries we found the man's house, a little old, forlorn, deserted-looking adobe casa. We rapped vigorously upon the old door, and after some minutes a small, withered old man appeared. Mrs. Wilkins told him what we wanted, but this ancient Delmonico declined to serve us, and said, in Spanish, 
The country was a desert. He had nothing in the house. He had not cooked a meal in years. He could not, and finally, he would not. And he gently pushed the door to in our faces. But we did not give it up, and Mrs. Wilkins continued to persuade. I mustered what Spanish I knew, and told him I would pay him any price for a cup of coffee with fresh milk. He finally yielded and told us to return in one hour. So we walked around the little deserted town. I could think only of the breakfast we were to have in the old man's casa, and it met and exceeded our wildest anticipations, for, just fancy, we were served with a delicious bouillon, then chicken, perfectly cooked, accompanied by some dish flavored with chili verde, creamy biscuit, fresh butter, and golden coffee with milk. There were three or four women and several officers in the party, and we had a merry breakfast. We paid the old man generously, thanked him warmly, and returned to the ship, fortified to endure the sight of all the green ducks that came out of the lower hold. You must remember that the Newburn was a small and old propeller, not fitted up for passengers, and in those days the great refrigerating plants were unheard of. The women who go to the Philippines on our great transports of today cannot realize and will scarcely believe what we endured for lack of ice and of good food on that never-to-be-forgotten voyage down the Pacific coast and up the Gulf of California in the summer of 1874.